Hello, and welcome to Good Jewish Lover. I'm Rabbi Brent Spodek from the Pardes Institute in Jerusalem, and I am thrilled to dive into some of our traditional texts to see what, if anything, they can tell us about how we can show up as better lovers in our lives for our partners, our parents, our children, our friends, all of the people we love or try to. I'm thrilled this time to be joined by Ellie Kreimendahl, who is a queer writer, comedian, and creative arts psychotherapist. She's the host of Shame Spiral podcast, which is amazing, and has been featured on Funny and Die, has a new funny advice series showing up on Crack.com. She was a Lambda Literary Screenwriting Fellow. She was a resident comedy artist at Ars Nova. She is also tremendously online. You can find her at Ellie Kreimendahl at Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, talking about mental health from her background as a therapist, parenting, queerness, sobriety, existential angst, and all of the stuff that makes for good humor. And when she is not gracing the internet with her funny and psychologically insightful material, she lives in Brooklyn with her husband and two children. And I am so delighted to be able to do this with you, Ellie. It's been a while since we've seen each other. I know. I'm so excited to come on and and also just get to talk to you. (laughs) Well, awesome. So... The story we're going to look at today, and this came from listening to so much of what you've spoken about and recorded about regarding shame and perhaps some interconnected dynamics of shame and embarrassment and guilt, which are related things perhaps, but different. And so this is a story from Ta'anit in the Talmud. And the Talmud, again, is this crazy conversation spreading out literally over hundreds of years of rabbis trying to figure out uh, how to live and how to make sense of living on this earth. So the Talmud encompasses things that we might think of as law, but also stories, jokes, recipes, digressions. It's a conversation. And one of the stories, a few of the stories they tell, but one in particular is the story of Honi HaMagal, Honi the circle maker, the circle drawer. There are a couple of incredible stories about him, and this is one of them. So Honi's walking along, and he sees a man planting a tree. And he says, huh, how long do you think until that tree is going to give you some fruit? And the man said, eh, probably about 70 years. And Honey said, no kidding. You think you're going to still be here in 70 years to get fruit from that tree? And the man says to him, look, I found a world full of trees that gave me fruit. So I'm planting trees so that future generations can find a world full of trees that will have fruit for them. Honing said, okay, had something to eat and fell asleep. Miraculously, the rocks of the forest rearranged themselves, made him like a little covering, and he slept for 70 years. He woke up, and he sees a guy in front of him, and he says, hey, hey, are you the guy who planted that tree with the fruit on it? And the guy says, no, no, I'm I'm his grandson. My grandfather planted this. And Honey says, God, no kidding, comes to the only obvious conclusion, I must have been asleep for 70 years. And then he looks out in the field, and he says, oh, yeah. There are a lot more donkeys in that herd than I remember there being. I guess there have been a couple more generations of donkeys. Huh. So he gets up and he goes to his house, right? And he's thinking, "Ah, I'm coming to my house, right? And he knocks and he says, is the son of Honey around? And the people in the house say, no, the son of Honey passed away. But his son, Honey's grandson, is here. Honey says, you're not going to believe this, but I am Honey. Nothing. Nobody says anything. They didn't believe him. He says, all right, no problem. 
He's going to leave his home. He's going to go to the study hall. He's going to go to the academy where all the sages gathered. And he's like, all right, I'm, I am Honey. I'm coming into the house of studying. And he sees all of the sages gathering and they're talking. And he hears one of them say about some other scholar, wow, that guy's almost as good as Honey was in his day. And Honey makes his grand entrance and says, ta-da, hello, I am Honey. Nothing. Nobody believes him. Nobody welcomes him. Nobody gives him any honors. Nobody respects that he is the great Honey returned after all these 70 years. Honey at this point is just beside himself. He's terribly upset. He prays for divine mercy and he dies. And Rava, a different sage, another sage says, ah, this is what people are talking about when they say, give me friendship or give me death. And scene, with that sort of enigmatic Greek chorus line from Rava, the scene ends. So we've got this guy, Honey, falling asleep, waking up, looking to connect or reconnect, failing, feeling something, begging for death, which is, to his mind, preferable to whatever he's feeling or experiencing in that moment. And then this enigmatic phrase, give me, give me friendship or give me death. So I'm asking you as a therapist, as a comic, as a insightful observer of the human condition, what do you make of the story? What jumps out at you? Ugh, it's so <laughs> devastating. Ah, <laughs> oh, so many things came to mind. I mean, I feel like that is such a great metaphor for a core human existential nightmare of <laughs> like, do I do I matter? You know, like here I am. This is my truth, and just being met with just absence or denial—that's so painful. So I really was feeling for him in that way. And then also what came to my mind was something about like what happens if you die before you've sort of processed the death of ego in a certain way. Not that anyone ever fully achieves that, but like the fact that ultimately we don't matter and, you know, what matters is like what we leave behind, la la la, like the fruit on the trees, right? Like who we were specifically with all the labels we attach to it is kind of irrelevant, but only in name, like all that stuff carries through, right? But no one gives a shit who Honey is. It's like Honey, ideally, I guess what came to my mind is like, well, I I guess ideally you can kind of really make peace with that before you die. And this guy didn't have a chance to do that. He was just in his ego, woke up, it was unprocessed, and it killed him. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, death by ego. <laughs> yeah. I totally have that sense of both, like, feeling that sort of desperate quality of sort of like, look at me, don't you remember me? Don't you love me? Don't you get that adulation? And on the one hand, looking at him like, oh, that's a little needy and desperate, Lord knows I don't have any of those feelings or need for adulation, right? Or like hungering for someone to recognize me, to sort of give me the gift of their attention. And I love the idea that at some point somebody reaches a level of maturity that that doesn't matter to them. I can see where that's attractive. I That feels very far off. Yeah, I get that. I've been noticing lately the way that, you know, now that I have kids, I'm aware in a different way of the way my mother will be like, like all my grandparents have, have long passed and she'll often tell my kids stories about her parents. And I've just been 
taking that in in a different way lately and thinking about what it means to her. And I think I have a just a very contrarian existential streak that pops up often. <laughs> and that side of me is just sort of like, who? Can, I mean, I loved my grandparents so much. That being said, it's like, why? Like, why do you need to do this? There's something that bothers me about like our human need to do that. And I'm sure it's about my own hunger for that and somehow wanting to reject it. It's like, I want it to not care about those details and just have the fruit be enough. Yeah. But I'm sure that is me in some way denying my hunger for oh. sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. God, totally. Because my mom, my mom will do the same thing with all of the details of her parents and she remembers them and they live in her heart. And like, I remember my grandparents as, you know, when I was a kid, but my grandfather passed when I was very young and like, she'll give me these stories and I'm simultaneously, I've got that sort of like, all right, enough, enough, stop, like, stop trying to trap me in the past. Yeah. But at the same time, hungering for that sort of connection, right? And like, know. you know, wishing I, I didn't get it secondhand, but I had more of that connection and you know, and I'll, and then I'll turn around and do the same thing. My son is named after my grandfather, my mother's father, and, you know, want to give him stories of like, okay, here's the guy you were named after, and here's where, you know, he was a pretty all right guy, and here are some things to admire about him, like almost sort of to make him a hero. I mean, and he was a good guy, but sort of to make him a hero in my son's imagination, but how much yeah. I hunger for that sort of intergenerational connectivity even as I'm also, when it's pushed on me, being like, no, 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 step out. Totally. Yeah, there's such a there's such a push and pull there. It's very interesting to see, like, the fear, when you're conscious of, like, those impulses that you have, but and then can actually, because you're conscious, investigate them and be curious. Like, w one of the things that I was noticing about this the other day is that, you know, those, like, rainbow cookies? Yeah. The little, with marzipan. And, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like there's such a New York... Thing. Yeah, and like, not rainbow. My, this isn't like a pride rainbow. This is just they've always been made oh, from no, like no. old school Italy rainbow That's cookies. Right. Okay, yes, rainbow I know exactly cookies. what you're talking about. They're cut in little pieces. Yeah. So my mom always told me when I was a kid, like she loves those rainbow cookies and her enjoyment of them was always kind of peppered with little stories about like her parents, you know, everyone lived in these like Lower East Side tenements, like all that. Like it was like, we would all eat these rainbow cookies. There was always enough food, even though no one had any money, like rainbow cookies, blah, blah, blah. And um, I was always like, ugh, or whatever. But now I love the rainbow cookies so much. And then the other day I brought home a box of them from the bodega in my family. We were all eating them at dinner. And then I always think I heard my mother tell my daughter Goldie about that last week. And my experience watching the interaction was like, she doesn't care. Like, she doesn't care that you grew up eating those cookies. Like, I felt like I saw her not care. And then while we were eating the cookies, she was like, Gigi loves these cookies. Like, Gigi grew up eating these cookies. And now you love these cookies. I love these cookies. And um, I was so moved by that. And I was like, you know, details notwithstanding, there's a really good chance that Goldie will grow up loving these rainbow cookies. And there is something that just kind of continues on. And it's this, it's a cookie, but there's a lot of history and memory attached to this particular cookie. And I was like, oh, she does care. Like it matters, you know? 
Yeah, I feel like we're so focused on us as individuals and our ability to explore our truth and our reality as individuals is great and wonderful, right? And you spend any time in some traditional society of any sort, and one of the things that becomes really clear really quickly is that roles are much more prescribed. Gender roles in particular are usually much more prescribed. And what a good thing it is, what a wonderful thing it is to live in a society where people can pursue their own truths, come to their understandings of who they are, how they want to be in the world, and live that way. And that's a really good thing. And yeah. one of the things we lose with that is that sense of deep interconnectivity of, mm -hmm. right, I am living in the same place where my ancestors live. I am responding to the things they responded to. I'm sort of located in this intergenerational context. And so yeah. what we get in terms of freedom and independence is incredible and incredibly valuable. But there's also a cost we pay in terms of connection and belonging and being in and of a place that is, it's hard to sort of calculate that. It's hard to figure out what to do with that. But there's a loss there as well. And I feel him losing it. Like that, wait, like, I want to belong here. I want to be part of this, but I'm not. Yeah, I know. And it brought something up for me too about the community receiving him in the way that they did because- it's like they're sort of the antagonist, presumably kind of holding this other position. It's almost as if like he's the one who is not evolved or something. But they also were so absorbed in their own world's study life that they didn't see or hear this man in front of them telling them something yeah. miraculous. Like they were like rejecting the story and rejecting the offering. Where and, and hearing that, I was kind of just like, "Oh my god!" Like, can, can you imagine? I mean, in in metaphorically, like, I'm, it happens all the time where someone is like, "I have this offering," and you're kind of like, "Oh no, <laughs> you know, no!" But uh, that that pretty much encapsulates my entire career as a rabbi. <laughs> Totally. Like, really, this is not as boring as you remember in Hebrew school. It's actually can be pretty interesting. Uh, you know what? Never mind. Okay, fine. Yes, totally. And it made me it made me sad. And it made me think about like that repetition. Like, oh, like if you woke up, if that was you tomorrow, you would have the same experience oh. and the the sadness of that. Yeah. Just a couple of months ago, I was in Germany with uh, my wife and her family. And my wife's family is from Germany. They were refugees during the Holocaust. Wow. And so we went back, back, even though I'm not, you know, back to Germany, which is where we go back to in our ancestral line, not in our individual lives. And we were laying a uh, Solperstein, one of these stones, in the pavement right outside of the house where my wife's grandmother grew up, you wow. know, which was stolen by the Nazis. And she fled and much of the family was murdered. And, you know, that painful story. But one of the things that my mother-in-law said then that has really stuck with me is, so my mother-in-law grew up without any grandparents because her mother made it to America as a, as a young woman, as a refugee, and none of the older generation made it. So my mother-in-law grew up without any grandparents, but she's now a grandmother herself. And she was talking about how much she's always focused on what she lost by not having grandparents, not having extended family in that way. But being there in Germany and being in what's much more her ancestral village and realizing that her grandparents 
never got the experience of being grandparents, right? Mm. She's always been aware of how she missed the experience of being a grandchild and coming to terms with, oh, right, and they never got to the experience of being a grandparent. And just thinking about that sort of intergenerational connectivity and, yeah, again, the loss of it, but the loss of it both for, you know, the generation that's trying to pass on, but also the generation that's trying to receive. Exactly. And how much is lost in, like, major traumatic events like the Holocaust, but also how much of that is just lost in the flows of life, of modern life, of the complexities of people's lives. And, yeah, just feeling that sadness. Totally. So let me see if you can offer some therapeutic comedic advice. Okay. So what advice would you give Honey if Honey called you up exactly there, right? And let's say, you know, Honey calls you up and is like, Ellie, I don't know what to do. Listen, I just woke up after 70 years. I went to my house. Nobody recognizes me. I go to my academy. I go to the yeshiva. Nobody recognizes me. It's like I never existed. Nobody cares about me. Nobody loves about me. Everybody's rejecting me. I just want to die. What would you tell them? I mean, honestly, like, especially as you just laid all that out, I'm kind of like, yeah, yeah, man. Like, of of course you do. (laughs) You know, it's like, it's so painful and so chilling. And as you were saying it too, I had kind of a, a newer thought of compassion that followed my first judgmental thought that was like, totally can imagine myself in that scenario being just like, well, I guess I'm done here. Like, no one knows who I am. My life is gone. Like, what? Too much to start all over. Like, let's just call it. Totally makes sense. I feel like I would believe that person, believe Honey, first of all, I hope. And I would validate the fact that he wants to just end it. I mean, my impulse is kind of like, you could do that. You have that right. Or... It's kind of an opportunity you could kind of try to build new connections starting from scratch and see what that brings you with this community. Or it's kind of like an incredible opportunity to start a brand new life, which like I'm like that kind of person where I'm always like, ooh, new life. (laughs) Sign me up. I love things to change, you know. So that could be another possibility, whichever road he took, if it was one to continue living, it would be extremely difficult, but his new life could be even better. You know, who knows? Yeah. Yeah. But still with that, that hungering of like, I can't accept my own ephemeral nature. The fact that I'm just here for a little while and one day I'm going to pass. Everybody I love is going to pass. I just can't deal with that. Right. I'm thinking like, yeah, you must have listened to Hamilton. Yeah. You know, there's that line in there, you know, something, something. Lord, bless and forgive me. I want to build something that's going to outlive me. And that Mm -hmm. feeling of like wanting to build something that's going to outlive you, wanting to cheat death, wanting to say like, okay, you're going to get me, but I'm going to keep going. How would the contours of my love for the people in my life be different if actually I could fully accept that I'm transitory and I don't need to like grasp onto their love with neediness, hoping that that's going to help me outlive, outlive, exist, matter beyond my temporal existence? I guess I don't think about this particular thing that much about like the desire to kind of outlive or like leave a legacy. Like it's not, I have many things that I obsess about and that's not one of them. Uh, I'm taking care of it for you. So (laughs) I don't know why. Like, I think I'm kind of like, it's so important to me to do work that 
matters to me while I'm alive. Like that is one of the top five driving forces in my life. I don't think it really matters to me that it carries on when I'm dead, but, oh, wait, I just really wanted to say something about uh, what would the contours of your love look like? In my 20s, when I was in love with people, I was so panicked of about losing the love, the love changing, losing them. Like I did have such a strong need that poured out of me that I managed in a variety of ways, not all good at all. And I feel like only in my marriage, I've kind of gotten to, or just arrived at this place of like, not detachment, but like a good example of it is there was a moment I realized, I think it was like a year or so before I married my husband, where I realized that even though we were engaged, we could still get divorced at any point and that that was the reality and that there was no way to prevent that from happening. And when I realized that it was like, I mean, which is, that's so obvious, but when I really took that in, it was like such a light, incredible feeling because I was like, well, there's no point in grasping because the reality is he could wake up any morning and be like, I'm leaving you. And that to me felt like weirdly really comforting to just to be like, I'm not in control of this. And the fantasy of control, I think for me, causes more suffering, if that makes sense. That being said, it would like devastate me beyond belief if my <laughs> husband ever leaves me. I like pray that he doesn't. But do you know what I'm do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yes, I I, I think I know what you mean in that sense of letting go of that grasping right? Of like holding on, like this will save me, this will validate me. And I think like you can't honestly love something if you're not willing to let it go, right? That, to have that sense of yeah. differentiation that this thing I love is not me. And this thing mm -hmm. I love is not a thing. This thing, I, this person I love is not me. And it seems so vital. And I see that, you know, my kids are a little bit older and I can, I can see on the not too distant horizon, my older one leaving home, you know, yes. to go off into the world and have their adventures. And I'm definitely having all of those feelings arise of like, yes, I want you to go out and have those adventures and go backpacking and go explore. And maybe I could just curl up with you and tuck you in and read <laughs> you a story one more time, even though you're almost 16 years old and that would not actually yeah. be appropriate and sort of even a little creepy. And yeah. so like I can really identify that sense of holding on and grasping in ways that like I think the right thing to do is, you know, exactly as you're saying with your husband, sort of like cultivate that differentiation that lets you know like, okay, I'm me and you're you and we have this relationship, we have this connection, but we're also independent and we can move and have to move independently. You know, that's that's a hundred percent important with with your children as they grow up and with your partners as well, even though the, the movements are different. I say all that, but it's like my brain says it, but my heart is still like, hey, older kid, you want to come take a walk with me? No? Okay, that's cool. No problem. But I'm like totally breaking inside. Yeah, It's almost like I mean, it almost feels like asking someone on a date, which I haven't done in a long, long time. But like, there's a courage of doing that, of being like, hey, you you think you might want to go get a drink? No? Okay, no problem. That's cool. Except doing that with my yeah. kid all the time. Yeah. I've still got that desire for validation and like, 
I can't oh, imagine totally. Nahoni being like, oh, nobody remembers me? No big deal. No, I mean, that would be, that's like a, a whole other end of the spectrum. <laughs> you know, and my daughter's almost five and she totally rejects me all the time. <laughs> like she'll, I'll be like, want to cuddle and watch Paw Patrol? And she's like, no, you know? <laughs> and it's like, I know it hurts my feelings on some level. I'm very careful to not put that on her because for many reasons, familial, whatever, like. I wonder if part of what it is, is Honey, you know, he slept for 70 years and actually part of this is accepting that you got to let go. And he didn't set out, it doesn't seem, he didn't set out with the intention of sleeping for 70 years, you know, sleeping for a lifetime and getting an extra generation, but he sort of held on past his time or circumstance led him to do mm -hmm. that. And I wonder if part of this is, you know, in ways that like I can say, but can't really imagine, like accepting that, yeah, everything is temporary. The relationship I have with my children is temporary. The relationship I have with my spouse is temporary. It's temporary because at one level, they're going to grow and change. And so the relationship that I have is temporary. Yeah. Right. The relationship I have of cuddling up under the pillows and, you know, and watching Paw Patrol, that's temporary. That, you know, God willing, you're not going to be doing that with your 15 year old. But not just the relationship's temporary. They're temporary. I'm temporary. And yeah. living in that without being overwhelmed by it. Honey, because of the circumstances of his story, didn't live in that, sort of jumped past it. But I wonder if this is almost like a cautionary tale, like saying like, hey folks, this is what can happen if you try and hold on too much, too long, too tightly. You gotta hold it mm. loosely. You gotta hold it gently. You can't grasp. Yeah, and, and I'm thinking about the beginning of the story and you know, obviously there's something that's important about that initial interaction. With the planting the trees? Yeah, and that he was in a place in his life, in his mind, where it wasn't intuitive to him why someone would plant a tree that you're never going to eat yourself. And like what that says about his lens on his life and the world at that moment. Yeah, and, and seeing his place in that intergenerational connection one of my favorite things in the forest, particularly up, uh, you know, up in the Hudson Valley where we both have roots, is so you go into the forest and, you know, very common is to see trees down, right? And the trees that are down are covered with moss and lichen and things are growing on them and there are funguses and all sorts of cool things happening. And if you look at that tree, that tree is, you know, dead. But if you zoom out and look at the forest, that dead tree plays a vital role in the health of the forest. And yeah. the forest as a whole isn't healthy. If there aren't, you know, dead trees and organic material on the ground enriching the soil that keeps the forest healthy. And thinking like, you know, I go through my life, I think most of us go through our lives thinking about ourselves as a tree, right? And like, mm. how am I doing? And yeah. the part of the wisdom of the forest and maybe the wisdom of this story is, buddy, you're not a tree. You're a part of the forest, right? Yeah. The organism of interest is not tree. The organism of interest is forest. The organism of interest right. isn't honey. The organism of interest is the society, the community, the, the connections. Mm -hmm. And your time will pass but the health of the organism of interest can endure. And in fact, your passing is part of that. Don't hold on too long. Don't grab. Ugh. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, it, it was so much easier for me to think about dying before I had children. Oh. I know that's such a like classic thing to say, but it's so much worse now. Like, because I, I remember I used to just think I used to worry about it and be like, oh, my parents will be really sad, but it's okay ultimately. And now I'm just like, it's never about me though. Like I'm just kind of, I mean, I it's a little bit, I'm kind of like would be sad to miss a lot if I died young or something. But when I think about like my children's grief, I just can't stand oh, it. God, I like yeah. cannot stand it. Yeah. 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 Well, on that cheery note. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, you know, it's 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 tough because it's like, I mean, this is why actually I think what you're doing with therapy and comedy is so important because like at a certain level, you got to laugh. Like you got to recognize like, all right, we're here. We're mortal. We're temporary. We've got an expiration date. It's ludicrous. It's absurd. Here we go. I totally agree. I feel like for me, it's the only thing because like this sort of thing, I just, what like the thing I just said where you're like, okay, lighter, like let's end on a lighter note. Like it's so normal for me to say something like that. Like this is just how I think. It helps me to be able to talk about it with a light touch because yeah. it is inevitable. It's part of the foundation of our experience. And I cope with it much less well if I'm not able to talk and laugh about it. I've just got to. It's insane. It's insane what we are all expected to do here on this planet in our lives. It's crazy. It's totally it's crazy. It's totally crazy. I, You know, so I'm in New Zealand now, and I went hiking not long ago out in this amazing range, which is actually an active volcano, you know, that's erupted as recently uh -huh. as 1975. And, you know, so there are these little, like, warning markers all along the trail or the track saying, this is an active volcano. It can erupt at any time with no warning. Proceed with Ooh. caution. Right, exactly. I'm like, oh, okay. You know, and I'm out there by myself, you know, hiking, and that's fine. But definitely thinking like, oh, okay, everything's fine. Everything's been cool since 1975, which coincidentally is about when I showed up in this world. And cool. And now I'm just going to walk along with the knowledge that at any given moment, what I'm standing on could literally blow up with hot lava and carry me away. Oh my God. Okay. I think it's time for a snack. <sighs> but part of what I was thinking about as I was trekking along there was like, right, I guess actually this is all of life. Like, yeah, for sure. This is just like a super concentrated example of like, yep, you are hiking on a, you know, in a crazy world and anything can happen at any point without warning. Have fun. <laughs> Good luck storming the castle. I exactly. I know. I think about it all the time. It's like every time you get in the car or something, you're kind of walking alongside an active volcano. Yeah. That's... And, we all, and we all just have to deal with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and there's, you're, you're right. There is a lightness to it. There's like, all right, this is bonkers. Let's have some fun. It's bonkers. Well, exactly. I, I think it's a yeah. line from uh, BFG. Well, as long as we're here, we might as well frolic, which is... Yeah, I like that. So I want to ask by way of closing, you know, one of the rituals that anchors me is every Friday night we go around the table and we share moments from the recent past when we've been proud, when we've been embarrassed, and when we've been grateful. And so mm -hmm. I'm wondering if there are moments in your recent past on your journey on this active volcano of life where you felt proud, felt embarrassed, and felt grateful? Yeah, sure. Proud. Well, let's see. I mean, yesterday I had like an important meeting 
about my podcast and I was really nervous to have to talk about it and like be professional in that particular way, like sell my wares. And Uh um, it's, I don't feel that's my strong suit. So, and I I felt like I just kind of, I felt, I felt proud of myself because I feel like I just talked as myself about what I actually care about, about what I'm working on. And then I left feeling good. And I was like, Right. That's because I was just like authentic and I didn't pre-plan it necessarily. I just let myself t- tell the truth about why I let, what why I care about what I'm doing. So that, that I felt proud of that. Um, embarrassed. I, okay, I'm going to try to cut to the core of this. Basically, I was, I was at an airport flying back to New York City from where I was visiting my family in Florida last week. And it had been a shit show week of a lot of illness. Everyone was sick. It was terrible. I was actively still kind of sick when we were in the airport and I was not at my best. And um, our baby wasn't on the ticket for some reason. The It was getting later and later. No one else was at the counter. It looked like we could possibly miss the flight. And I just my anxiety started rising and I, I like have anxiety. So this, this is something that happens and I should have noticed that that was happening and kind of like taken a breath, asked my husband to take over the interactions with the customer service folks. I did not. And I overheard one of the people working at the desks whisper to the other person, we're running out of time. <laughs> <laughs> and it like triggered me. And I was like, what? What did you say? Like I freak, I kind of just freaked out. And it was like they weren't even talking to me. It was just me really not in my best self, just fully having my anxiety leak out into interactions with folks where I did not think they deserved to become a part of my anxiety. Been that there, was embarrassing. That. <laughs> oh man, that was embarrassing. And what well, was grateful? Hmm. Well, I was just talking to a friend a couple hours ago. It was on her podcast, but it was she's <laughs> my actual friend and it was a real conversation and we were talking about sobriety because I've been I'm a recovering alcoholic. I've been sober for about 13 years. Wow. And she asked me like what surprised me in getting sober and I found myself talking about just how grateful I am for the family that I have and knowing that if I had not gotten sober, even if I was married and had children, I don't think I would have the kind of love in my life. I don't think I would be able to give or receive the kind of love in my life I am able to now. And so I feel it is a direct result of my sobriety And I feel just so grateful for that, you know, for all the things that have come into my life and the universe, whatever, that have allowed me to continue to make that choice every day. So I'm grateful for my family and for sobriety. That is a lot to be grateful for. Thank you for for sharing that. And thank you so much for making the time to come and be on this show and have this conversation I got to say, I've read this story about Honey a million times over the years, and reading with you brought out all different dynamics, and I'm so grateful to you for that. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a great conversation. It was so nice to be here. Awesome. Well, thank you, Ellie Kreimendahl, for making the time to be here. As always, you can find out more about 
Good Jewish Lover and other opportunities for substantive Jewish learning at pardes.org.il. And you can be in touch with me, Rabbi Brent Spodek, on Instagram and online. And my email is brent at pardes.org. Special thanks to Troy Kelly at the Armory in Wellington, New Zealand, Johnny Taylor in Beacon, New York, Jordan Steifman and David Gutbazal and Shani Gross for making Good Jewish Lover happen. And we look forward to learning with you next time how we can love the people in our lives a little bit better on Good Jewish Lover the Torah of Relationships. Thank you.